This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Great to have you with us. On today's episode, we were broadcasting live from Aldar Experts at the Coca-Cola Arena, which is why it doesn't sound like we're in the studio. It also meant we had access to the fantastic Tracy Tutor, the star of Million Dollar Listing in L.A., Talking about success, family, fear and failure, we were meeting the woman behind the Mum Identity Project and discussing the importance of that transition period with the founder of NMF. Incredible gynaecologist and obstetrician, Dr Donna Pollard, joining us from King's College Hospitals. We talk about early pregnancy issues and it was Dr Katrin Yarn, vet and behavioural expert, answering all of your pet concerns from anxiety to barking, chewing and more. Great to have you with us today as we broadcast live from Aldar Experts here at the Coca-Cola Arena. And we are so delighted to welcome now the female powerhouse of Million Dollar Listing Los Angeles, part of the Doug Element team, Tracy Tutor, the first and only female realtor to appear on that Bravo show, making her debut in uh, 2017. Today, she delivered a talk at Aldar Experts called From Surviving to Thriving. And today, she's definitely proven that a mum of two girls, she sells homes in the millions and still manages to find time to keep fit, stay positive, and fly here to Dubai for just a few days. Welcome, Tracy Tudor. How are you today? I'm so good. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for your time. I know we're, uh, we're a bit crunched for time. You're flying back tomorrow, I believe. I am tomorrow morning, but it's been a quick trip, but a very fun one. And obviously, what a pleasure to be here and speaking to all of the brokers across the UAE. What I must have been rapt to have you on the stage. What was the response was, like? You know... I was I couldn't really see anybody out there. It was just a sea of people. So I just looked out and just well, I got through it. I mean, it was a one hour keynote, so it was quite huge. a bit to get through it, but exciting. For anyone that obviously wasn't able to be in the room today, surviving to thriving, why did you choose that and what are some of the key takeaways that perhaps people listening today? I think could because learn? you know, I've been in the business for twenty five years and I don't think that twenty five years was an easy journey, right? It, there are definitely failures along the way and lessons learned from that. And I remember when I first started the show and I thought to myself, what can I do with this? And I sat down before I wrote my first book and I said, I think what I want to talk about are all the things that I didn't have as a young agent coming into the industry. I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have someone to guide me along the way and show me that you know, you're going to fail. You're going to lose the listing every once in a while. But as long as you're authentic to yourself and you form a brand and you have an awareness about what's authentic to you, you will stand out to your core audience and who those people are to you will be your clients for life. And not only that, in terms of being authentic and living by your values, that is a great way to live your life in terms of being able to sleep at night and like who you are and have clear goals about who you want to be and, and where you want to be. I've always said, you know, if I'm not laying my head on the pillow every single night and falling asleep with like some sense of ease, mm-hmm. I'm doing something wrong, mm-hmm. you know, so. Can we talk about your book and uh, the 2020 book, Fear, being a four letter word? Yes. Um, you, I mean, my goodness, standing in front of the stage in front of thousands of people is something that would terrify an awful lot of people. And despite me being on the radio every day, I actually don't love public speaking. So that, that's a very real fear for me. <laughs> that's hysterical. But it's, it's strange, isn't it? Yeah. Is there anything that you're still 
you know, fearful of. I wake up every day with some semblance of fear that, you know, is going to try and creep in and sort of take over, right? Mm. And I think it's about acknowledging it and experiencing it and then moving on from it. You know, if we push it out of the way and we don't acknowledge what the experience is, then how are we gonna move forward? So it's okay to be scared. It's okay to have fear in your life. And you know, before you go into a listing, it's about how you manage it. So for me, you know, before I go into a listing or before I got up on stage today, sometimes it's as simple as like playing a song that gets you like you know, in I, it. You know I wanna know that song. Well, for me today, it was Unstoppable by Sia. Sia. Yeah. And so it, it depends, you know, whatever I'm walking into, sometimes it's, it's not that. Sometimes it's a physical activity. That's why I work out the way that I do. It sort of sets the tone for my day. And for me, it's about winning. So I wake up and I give back to myself first before I have to go give to everybody else. And it just, it always puts me in the right mindset. And that's different for everybody. I think with fear, there's kind of two sides. There's the fear of failure, which you've talked about you know having to overcome and, and actually being okay with that because of what it teaches us but and I I don't want to speak on behalf of women but I think a lot of women are afraid of success as well about what you're capable of and if you do succeed if you do have a goal and you achieve it what that might mean for your life and for your family's life is that something you've heard yeah I mean I, I've lived it right I'm, I'm a single mom I was married for 17 or with my ex-husband for 17 plus years married for 14 And, you know, perception is everything, particularly when you're on a television show. And the perception was that because I had success as a real estate agent was that I put my business first. And that's in quotes for all of you listening. Uh Um, The truth is I never put my business before my family. But as a successful woman came independence, not just financially, but just in terms of being a woman in a, that is career minded, that also wants to be a mother, that also wants to be a friend, a wife and all of the things. And you can. Are you going to give every single thing 100 percent all day long? No, that, that's impossible. <laughs> but, you know, for me. It really was about just doing what I could to survive. And, you know, divorced, um, obviously back out there again. I have no regrets. I I love what I do. I wouldn't take any of it back. And and I celebrate other women who are empowered enough to to push through and and not be scared of those things. Mm -hmm. Your success in your own personal life and in your career has to be just as important as all of the other things. I think it's really hard because we judge people by our own standards of success and that might be, you know, financial relationship. It's different or, for everyone. It is. And I think that's really hard, um, you know, as a woman to think, okay, well, she's done that. Is that right for, for me? And kind of one of my big parenting mottos is great for you, not for me, you know, and, and listening to that inner voice of going, that looks amazing, but that actually isn't what success looks like for me and my family right well, you, now. Well, you know what they say, opinions are like... Mm-hmm. You know? Yes. And Everyone has one. <laughs> Everyone's got one. But it's the truth. You really have to, like, look inward. Because, listen, if you're always out searching for everybody else's approval or, you know, guidance, then you're not really looking within yourself. And so you have to do what makes you ultimately happy. So what does success look like for you now? And how does that compare to how you started out you know, those decades ago, especially in the property industry? Well, I think I'm obviously at a place in my life and in my career where I'm financially independent. And that's where it always started for me. I never wanted to to depend on a man to provide for me because I wanted to be able to make those thoughtful decisions without leaning on someone else to to make them for me. Now, success to me is far different. It's about spending time with my friends and my family, 
my clients as well, but I'm much more well-rounded at 48 than I was at 24 when I first started in this you business. You couldn't pay me to go back and be 24 again. No, God, no. There's a lot of young I mean, brokers the in the room. Though, when we were, I had when, fun. When we were 24, we didn't have social media <laughs> following know, us around right? everywhere, right? Like, we could, like, live life and really experience uh-huh. things without, like... You know, the downside of obviously having a media like we do today. Can I ask you, as another mother of two two girls, and I, I just want to preface this by saying I've, I've asked men the same question here, whether they are chefs or explorers or business people. But oh, doing it all, that kind of juggling idea, what kind of support systems, what strategies do you have in place to help you with that very real day-to-day juggle of being a working mother? Well, I always believe, like, you are the environment that you surround yourself with. So my friends, for me, lifelong. Like, these people have been through everything. They've seen my darkest moments. They've seen my brightest highs. And I always say, like... You always want to look at the woman standing next to you. And is she fixing your crown or is she knocking it off your head? The woman that fixes your crown is the woman you want to be surrounded by for life. And I believe like keeping those types of women and even men around you Mm -hmm. that celebrate you both in your successes and your failures. Can I get your thoughts on Dubai? I know it's not your first time here. I love, I love Dubai. I I mean, my God, I was here four and a half years Mm -hmm. ago when we were shooting for Million Dollar Listing when I was an ambassador for the Royal Atlantis launch and the residences there. But it's open now and just the development in and of itself in the last four years, the city has grown leaps and bounds. Tell me about it. My drive home changes almost every day. That's why I have to use Google Maps. (laughs) I'm like, I thought I knew the landmarks, but I don't. It's incredible. I mean, the the amount of growth that you guys have seen in Dubai is astounding. And what an incredible market as a real estate agent to be a part of something like this. So to be here today and you see the agents that are out there like really invested in listening to what's happening. It's because they're lucky enough to be a part of a market that they're they're a part of. One of the most exciting cities in the world right Absolutely now. Absolutely. Well, most. can we expect you to come back? Oh, I'll be back. Don't Bring you worry. I, I mean, they'd love it. Are they you would. kidding? I mean, there's a lot to see here. Water parks, restaurants. I'd actually like to enjoy myself the next time I'm here. Right, (laughs) the next time you come back, message me. We'll put a nice itinerary together, some shopping, some exploring, some kids stuff. I'm dying to go shopping here and do some fun stuff with the kids, not just work all the time. (laughs) Enjoy your afternoon. It's been a pleasure, Tracy, to to, to meet you and and hear some of your learnings, both related to industry, but also as a parent as well, and, and one who's, my goodness, made incredible strides. And I can tell by the look in your eye. It's not over. There's a no. lot more to come. Oh, honey, we're just getting started. For anyone that wants to follow you and follow your progress, what's the best place of finding you on Instagram uh, and on TV? Absolutely. Uh, at Tracy Tudor on Instagram. And we're currently in the last months of filming uh, season 15 for Million Dollar Listing Los Angeles, oh. which will air probably early 2024. Amazing. Stay tuned. Tracy, thank you so, so much. Thank you for having me. We're talking the workplace now, but actually so much more than that, because we all have curveballs thrown at us in life and navigating them can be confusing and often emotional and sometimes we lose ourselves. But we do all have to get back up, keep moving forward. And that's what happened to our next guest. She had to return to the corporate world while struggling with grief and is now on a mission to help other people with transitions, whether that is from a different country through grief after parenthood. Uh, Nikki Mapurataida is a professional development mentor and the founder of NMH. Nikki, how are you? I'm good, thank you, Helen, for having me on the show. Absolute pleasure. I'm I'm intrigued to hear some of your 
advice for those listening today? And I'm sure you'd be happy to answer questions if anyone wants to get in touch to, to leverage some of that knowledge. But would you mind telling us a little bit about your personal experience? I guess I don't like the word journey, but you know what I mean. What's led <laughs> you to, to, to realise why this is such an important area in so many people's lives? What happened to you, Nikki? Yeah, absolutely. I think we all um, go through different stages in our life uh, trying to balance many different um, obstacles whilst trying to have a career at the same time. I myself am a mother of two and I sadly um, had an ectopic pregnancy two years ago in between both children and I really struggled with that and I, I returned back into the corporate world just four days later having had been in a, a critical condition oh, gosh. and I really struggled um, professionally to just find my own identity again um, you know and, and deal with difficult conversations with colleagues um, whilst you know grieving privately uh, about such a personal subject so it really stemmed something uh, inside of me that there must be thousands out there experiencing exactly the same as what I was and that's really where NMH uh, grew from from a from a, a personal pain point of my own. Thank you for sharing that and I'm so so sorry you, you went through that Nikki. I think you know we've talked a lot over the last couple of years post-pandemic about bringing the whole person to work about how we're seeing much more about each other's humanity and you know the, the personal side of our professional colleagues but it's, it's so much easier said than done you know when you want to be in the workplace and you want to have that professional face on and you want to be productive when your heart is breaking and you know for, for you it was grief for some people it can be all sorts of different transitions and life-changing experiences you know coming back after having a baby um i know we're going to be addressing later in the show you know moving to a new country i think is a really really challenging one for an awful lot of people here as, as expats so tell us about your mission then with nmh look who are you looking to help and and how yeah absolutely so um what we're trying to do is create a new commu- community that facilitates professional growth of women within the UAE. So specifically, NMH supports women returning to the work after a career break. And as you so well said, that can be shaped and formed in many different ways. So it can be you've taken a step out from the career world, from experiencing illness yourself or caring for a relative, suffering bereavement, uh, divorce, moving country, you know, and, and as many of us have, stepping out to become a mother or a father. And through that process, you can lose a lot of your identity, um, you know, raise very difficult conversations with your colleagues, with your friends, with your managers. And I, I really needed to understand where I could go to air these conversations. And like I said earlier, that's how NMH was born. I, I wanted to create community where I could, you know, have one-to-one coaching, group workshops, networking events, and even helping others out there that can um, upskill uh, women that want to come back into the career world. And they just don't know how to do that. So um, we we offer a different range of um, services, but um, it's a really personal journey for me because that's exactly what happened to me and I didn't have the answers. (laughs) And that's the really hard thing, isn't it? I think a lot of people identify with this idea of, I want to do something, but I don't know how, or I want to mentor, but who? And and this idea of reaching out can be quite a foreign concept, I think, especially um, when you've when you're feeling confused as you, you know use the word identity there and I think that's absolutely right whether it is a grief or a, you know becoming a parent or becoming an expat um would you mind um talking a little bit about how you feel like the workplace is changing and maybe even how we view work I think 
I've actually known a few friends in the UK who've you know chosen to take sabbaticals when their children are a little bit older, or delaying, effectively having another maternity leave um, when their kids get to a, you know a, a different age and stage. Are, are we seeing a, a rise in career breaks? Yeah, I think LinkedIn um, recently did a, a research. Quite interestingly, forty percent of professionals have taken a career break, whatever that looks like to them, at some point in their lives. That's a huge number. Um, and that's a huge pool uh, talent that we are not tucking back into. So in terms of what the workplace looks like now, uh, generally speaking, I think there's a lot to be said about returnships that corporates are offering now. So allowing flexibility for mothers and fathers to return back into that corporate world and having that medium between the two uh, and allowing for, you know, everybody has a normal life. If I could have lots of different maternity leaves or sabbaticals, I probably would choose to. <laughs> um, but trying to return back into that corporate world is is a struggle. And I think corporates have had to adapt, have had to flex and have had to change. And that attitude, that that uh, change in thought process is is really refreshing. And I think COVID obviously had had a natural way of, of pushing everyone to think in, in that direction. But if you can uh, utilize it and work with your employer to create a, and foster a workplace environment that works really well for you, for your children, for your family, for your setup, I think that's a, an amazing position that you can be in. Mm. And, and for me, that's something that I personally did. And, and I had a really supportive company that I worked with at the time. And I still managed to, to benefit from that situation. So, yeah, I think, I I think, think workplaces are really changing. I think I think it's kind of a it's such an interesting point there. A lot of it comes to you know the willingness and the attitude of the individual, but it also comes down to a lot of the you know the workplace culture of a company. I was speaking on a panel recently about the realities of of um, it wasn't just working mothers; it was working parents because there were a couple of dads on the panel as well. One of whom worked for Visa Middle East, and he said something that I haven't stopped thinking about. So Visa Middle East, um, obviously here in Dubai, for the dads. Paternity leave there is 14 weeks and it can be taken at any time. And I was like, wow, oh, what? this is amazing. Not only that, they coach people in and out of parental leave. So when you're, you know, you're about to have a baby or your wife's about to have a baby, you will have professional coaching to talk about how potentially, you know, your life and your outlook on work might change and then transitioning back into the workplace when that leave is over. And I was like, oh, my goodness, if I could wave a magic wand over companies, Mike, they could be taking such an incredible leaf out of the book. We're in conversation now with the founder of NMH, Nikki Mapuris Haider. Um, it's really such an, a topical conversation um, as we see 1.8 million women leaving the workforce during the pandemic. So we're talking about women taking career breaks, but not just that, people taking career breaks because of grief or transitioning countries, um, all sorts of different reasons. Um, and Nikki, I've had a number of messages, a couple asking for your details, if it's okay to share that. How, what's the best way of getting in touch with you? Yeah, uh, nmh.events is the website and you can find me on Instagram, nmhdubai or under my name. We're also having our launch event on the 16th of November, so look out for tickets for that soon brilliant um i was just talking there about visa middle east and some of the the strategies and, and processes they have in place for helping people when on parental leave most most plottingly 14 weeks of paternity leave um and i i wondered if you could maybe offer some advice this afternoon and maybe this is what 
your platform, your community is going to be, you know, really putting into practice when it comes to transitioning back into work. And this can be after a long time or after after a change. What are some of the key takeaways that perhaps you've learned through your own experiences, but also some of the experts that you've been partnering with? Yeah, great question. I What I have um, experienced in my personal uh, experience is that you really need to build a community around you. So whether that is your friends, your family, your colleagues, your, your mum friends, your dad friends, um, you know, start talking. Communicating is key. And I think everyone has an answer for your own different experience. Mm-hmm. So once those conversations start, I think opportunities, uh, different conversations will emerge. My second thing I would do is try and upskill whilst you're on your career break, if that is possible at all, whether it's, you know, uh, on maternity leave. I know that's a whole different ballgame. <laughs> <laughs> Being a mother myself, finding time. Or if you're caring for, you know, a, a sick parent, that might also be difficult. But don't forget, when you get back into the corporate world, you have come back with so many different life skills that you would have picked up along the way. So you are mm. extremely valuable um, just by the experiences you have gone through, which are huge experiences for you to have stepped away from the career ladder. So that would be point number two. And I think number three is find the people that you want to work with, whether that's full-time or part-time. Try and attract those people that you relate to, whether it's, uh, again, talking from my, my own perspective, a mother. I, I can relate to other mothers out there, and, and that's exactly what I've done with NMH. I want to bring a community, get, community together, sorry, to try and understand how we can fix a problem that's out there. So mm-hmm. surround yourself with like-minded people. And I guess the, the flip side of that is what would you love to see companies and organisations doing to be more welcoming, to be more open, to perhaps destigmatize. And I, th- I think a big part of what you touched on, and we're going to be discussing this later with the Mum Identity Project, is exactly that kind of giving yourself credit for what you have done and perhaps reframing a career break as, as much more of a positive thing in terms of what you're bringing to the workplace. So what about the company side, Nikki? What would you love to see companies implementing um, to kind of further facilitate the career breaks that are becoming increasingly the norm? So change comes from the top, right? We all know that. Um, but it takes time. But in the meantime, I think what companies can certainly um, invest in is executive training for those at the top, educating those at middle management level on how we can capitalize on this really rich pool talent out there that we're not tapping into. Mm-hmm. Um, we also need to diversify our recruitment teams and, and make things more transparent to, you know, include everybody who has stepped away from the corporate world. And flexibility, I think, as I said earlier, that really has um, fostered into its own. Having COVID that has really pushed people to, to open their boundaries and allow flexibility in the workplace. And I think lastly, one thing which really helped me was to find a mentor, whether that's creating mentors within corporates to tag along to those that are having difficulties or need these questions answered or a little bit of a, you know, a a guidance. Mentors are so, so important in your personal life and your corporate world. And I think the increase in numbers of that has been really, really relevant in the last few years, certainly. I feel like it's, that's a topic for another day about the importance of mentors and how, and, how to find, and how to find one. I'd love to revisit that with you. Just last, I want to come to a question quickly from Greta, 
which I think is a really important one and something I see with friends, with Facebook groups saying any advice on part-time work. Everything that's suitable, e.g. a TA role, is a really low salary. I'd love to work from home. I have a background in marketing. Does Nikki have any contacts or ideas? Is part-time work something you're looking to be addressing with NMH? Absolutely. I think it's a, it's a large obstacle to be tackling just because of how our visa system works in the mm. region. But it's definitely something that um, needs to be addressed. And, and yeah, come along to one of the networking events and I can absolutely introduce you to other people out there. There is such an appetite for it. Can I just highlight that? It's not talked about, but I talk to CEOs and, and management levels saying I definitely need quality and I don't mind having that flexibility. But pairing the two together, that's the gap that NMH and hopefully I can help with. So, yeah, absolutely. There is a... a uh, hunger for it just um, come and see me and also start talking to other people that are in the same position um, Nikki as I said I've had a number of people asking for your details um, so if you want to send me the word work with your permission Nikki I will share your Instagram page where you will have news of that launch later on in November um, and I just wanted to read a message that we've had out from Sienna um, saying thank you to Nikki for, for sharing her loss after the loss of my father I couldn't function at work I had to leave for three months and when I got back I knew everyone around me was trying to make me feel better getting back to normal life wasn't as easy as nothing was normal anymore I don't think people understand that grief can take years to accept we're just expected to get back to work and be the pe- person we used to be however Unless you've been through grief, you can't really understand it. Sienna, thank you so, so much for, for, for sharing that. I, I think, well, you know, what a beautiful legacy um, for, for, that, for that loss that you had to think about your career change, but also how you're helping others um, reframe, you know, grief transition and addressing something not many people talk about, that sometimes we need a change, we want to change, and we might just need a bit of a helping hand along the way. Thank you for your time today. Really, really appreciate it. One of the greatest pleasures, and I'll be honest, in my job is connecting you with people who are experts in their field. And joining us now is Dr. Donna Annabel Pollard, an esteemed medical professional, UK trained and extremely experienced when it comes to managing early pregnancy complications. She's there at King's College Hospital um, in Dubai Hills Hospital Branch. And joining us on the phone now as we talk about exactly that, early pregnancy issues, complications, things that might be common but maybe not normal, and talking about things that can actually help. How are you, Dr. Pollard? I'm fine, thank you, Helen. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. And I think it's really important to kind of break a few taboos around this because an awful lot of women suffer in silence about some of the issues that we're going to be talking about today. Some of them we absolutely can help with, but I think some are really sad, sad and often inevitable parts of early pregnancies, such as early losses. But it is only through talking about it that we realise just how often they happen and also talk about what you know, help is at hand. Why is this an area that you're particularly passionate about, Doctor? I, I think it's because it's, quite, it, it's an important part of pregnancy that's sometimes overlooked. People often look at the end result, having the baby, and sort of sometimes neglect all the issues that, that women can experience during a pregnancy, particularly in early pregnancy, and also what we can do to help and make things a little mm-hmm. bit easier. Let's talk about nausea and vomiting. Now, I'll be completely honest, I was really scared about pregnancy because this is something my mum suffered with 
horrendously, not just morning sickness, but morning, noon and night sickness. And to make it worse, she was living in Japan and hate sushi and had a doctor that barely spoke English. So she told me all these horror stories about just how poorly she was. She did say she could get back into a size 10 jeans a day after giving birth, however. And I was really, really grateful that I didn't suffer from this. What I got instead was exhaustion, like I've never experienced it in my life. But that nausea and vomiting in pregnancy, can you, there's, there's a medical f- term for it, Dr. Pollard. Can you explain yes. Yes. what it is and, and why it happens? Right. It's called, the medical term for it is hyperemesis gravidarum. And it's quite common, probably 10, 15% of women will experience some nausea in early pregnancy. It's Mm -hmm. quite varying in severity in that some people have it quite mildly, others moderate, others severe. And it's Mm -hmm. in all the ranges according to how much it discommodes the pregnant woman's life that we try to, to provide assistance. But it's primarily felt to be caused by the pregnancy hormone HCG, which is the same hormone that people test for when they do a urine pregnancy test. And that's yes. the hormone that we think is responsible for a lot of the vomiting, nausea and vomiting that some women will experience in pregnancy. I think one of the big fears is taking medication for it. You know, a lot of women obviously very cautious about um, meds during pregnancy. Um, I mean, my goodness, I remember having being told, you know, if things get really bad with your knee pain, you can take a blue Panadol and me going, oh, great. I might as well just take a Tic Tac. That does absolutely nothing. But with the anti-sickness, there are actually some meds that are absolutely safe to take to deal with, you know, as you're talking about some of the moderate and severe symptoms. Um, it might be quite useful to name a couple of them and, and perhaps offer a little bit of reassurances around the safety, if you don't mind, Dr. Yes. Pollard. Yes, I, I think this is important because a lot of people, a lot of women feel that they should just grin and bear it and suffer in silence mm. because they don't want to take anything that would harm the baby. But over many years, we've arrived at a number of medications that can be used that are, have been proven to be safe in pregnancy. Um, in general, the Nausea and vomiting will get better by 12 weeks gestation, but not exclusively mm-hmm. so. But certainly the first line of treatment that we would consider is an antihistamine like cyclozine or meclozine. They're found to be quite safe in pregnancy. We would tend to advise patients to try and take it a few times a day. And if they think that they would generally, by the time they've seen us, know which meals or which times of the day they're feeling sick. So we would, mm-hmm. would, the advice would be try and take it about an hour before you think you want to try and eat something. Mm-hmm. And uh, several, two or three times per day. And that when they start to feel better with the medication, they, they shouldn't stop it because then mm-hmm. they can revert to what was happening before. Um, also, I, I, yes, Sorry. Oh, I want to say, aside from meds, what can be useful? Um, yeah. I, I saw a friend the other. I, thought, I saw a friend the other day who's uh, seventeen weeks pregnant. She said that her colleague guessed because of all the snacks and wrappers that were all over her desk because she found that eating yeah. know, salty crackers and, and biscuits to kind of ward off any t- kind of hunger that could make her feel nauseous. And um, ginger yeah. biscuits we hear about all the time. Is there any medical evidence in this? Yes, I mean general dietary advice is, is helpful. And what I always say to pregnant patients with nausea and vomiting is eat small quantities and often. 
Don't try to eat a big meal. Small bits and often, and eat what you fancy. It's a bland thing, not rich, milky mm-hmm. um, foods that are rich, you know, like a spicy curry or... If you're going to have a slice of toast, perhaps don't put any butter on it. Just stick to bland things. And the pregnant oh. women gen- generally know what doesn't upset them. And yes. I, I also try to reassure them that in early pregnancy, the baby is actually tiny. You know, it might be one centimeter size or, little, or less or a little bit more. But something that size doesn't require a huge amount of nutrition. <laughs> so that if you eat, uh, if you eat you know bland plain things that don't seem to you to be very nutritious, it will be enough for now for the next good, few weeks until you start to feel better. Good reassurance, Dr. Pollard, with us today. Joining us now, Dr. Donna Annabel Pollard, a specialist obstetrician and gynaecologist, speaking to us from King's College Hospital there in Dubai Hills. And we're talking about early stage issues in pregnancy. We've been addressing there the nausea and vomiting that so many women suffer from and how there are actually very achievable and effective methods of treatment. And I, I, I do want to give a bit of a trigger warning. We are talking about miscarriage and early loss now. Um, doctor, I really wanted to ask you, I guess, about ectopic pregnancies what are some of the symptoms that women experience and maybe a few details around just how how often they occur would that be okay yes that's fine ectopic pregnancy really is defined as pregnancy that's located outside of the uterus Mm. well outside the womb most Mm -hmm. commonly in the fallopian tubes but it could also be located in the cervix or in the interstitial portion of the fallopian tube located in the ovary or in the cesarean section scar, but most commonly in the tubes. Fortunately, it tends to present with symptoms before it gets serious. We always take ectopic pregnancy seriously because particularly those in the fallopian tube have the ability to rupture and can rupture catastrophically with severe abdominal hemorrhage if not diagnosed and treated early. Um, ectopic pregnancy tends to present with pain and bleeding in early pregnancy. So any woman experiencing either of those two symptoms, if they're noticeable, should seek advice. And when I say seek advice, uh, seek a consultation with an with a, um, obstetrician gynecologist. Um, ectopic pregnancy tends to present between six and eight weeks so that occasionally patients will come and say to me, they might be four weeks or five weeks pregnant. And they said, oh, I just thought I'd come and check because I was worried I might have an ectopic pregnancy. And I tend to say, you haven't given me a single symptom that suggests you've got an ectopic pregnancy as a form of reassurance. Dr. Pollard, we've had a message here and I, I really want to thank Hannah for getting in touch saying, um, I've now had four early stage miscarriages and giving up hope. Is there any method or meds that can help a little bean stick around longer than seven weeks? Hannah, I'm so sorry for your losses. Um, and I think that's that's all any any aspiring parent wants is a little little sticky bean to, to stay there for the full duration. If someone has had recurrent early stage miscarriages, Dr. Pollard, what are some of the ways that you would tackle that with a patient? Yes, we, we can help. I, I think one of the 
big things that does help is just psychological support. But there are a number of investigations that we tend to do for patients with recurrent miscarriage. Just checking the mother to make sure she doesn't have any underlying medical condition, for example, diabetes, or if she's carrying some extra bit of chromosome, or if she's got any sort of autoimmune disease or thyroid function disease. So there are a number of tests that we would run on someone who's had three or more miscarriages, which is what the definition of recurrent miscarriage is. Uh, It's a very stressful and painful experience for women. And what we usually find that in the end, what I, I often say to patients, is that you will get a baby, but you sometimes you just have to hang in there and it takes a while. But there's certainly things that we, we do um, in terms of providing pro- progesterone support, um, which can be given orally or vaginal pessaries. And uh, sometimes we find a role for low-dose aspirin in the management of women with the current miscarriage. And uh, quite often, um, the majority do eventually get a baby, but it can it can be a, a psychologically difficult and trying time mm-hmm. um, for, for the patient who's having to go through it. I, I mean, when we look at the causes of miscarriage, the commonest reason for which it occurs, if you look at a large group of miscarriages, is that there's some sort of chromosomal abnormality in the feet, in the conception that makes nature deal with it by by causing a miscarriage, so to speak. Um, and for this reason, it's one of the reasons for which older, the older the woman is, the patient is when she's having a miscarriage, then sometimes the prognosis is not as good as for a younger woman. With that said, a lot of older women do do have a baby without any problems. Thank you, Dr. Pollard. A message here for a dad saying, my wife had a corneal pregnancy. No doctor was willing to take her case. Three hospitals just told us to go to a government hospital as it was high risk. One doctor was courageous enough to take my wife. Ultra stressful days. And I think what you're speaking to this afternoon and, and so, so wisely is about the medical side, but also about the emotional side. Um, it's incredibly, incredibly stressful Um certainly to be trying to conceive after having losses um, and even when you are pregnant to, to as, as Hannah says, you know, hope that little bean sticks around as, as long as possible. Um, Dr. Pollard, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and as I said, you can be found there at King's College Hospital, specialising in early pregnancy issues. So who better to join us on this topic today? Wishing you a wonderful, wonderful afternoon ahead and thank you for your insight. This content is for informational purposes only and is not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. So you're a new mum. You're on call 24 hours a day. You have fallen desperately in love with that baby, but you feel like you're on a conveyor belt of feeds and nappy changes. BC, before children. Maybe you are ultra efficient at work and enjoyed going out with your friends. Now you're doing well if you can get out of your dressing gown and leave house before lunchtime. Or maybe it's been years since you gave birth, but you just can't connect to the woman you once were and would love to claim back of your, you know, your old self back. Or maybe you want to start something new. 
A woman who can identify with all of this and more is the founder of the Mum Identity Project, Risha, joining us live on the line. Tell us a little bit about her why, her mission, and how she's helping other women in that situation. Risha, great to have you with us. How are you? Thank you so much for having me again, Helen. I'm well. Pleasure. I'm very excited to be on your show. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. And you've got some big news to share as well about an upcoming event addressing exactly this. Before we get to that, though, I'd love a little bit of context. And for anyone who perhaps didn't hear you last time, would you mind sharing a bit about your own experience that got you to this point of wanting to help others? Sure. Um, So before I start to give context, the Mum Identity Project is a community that supports and empowers stay-at-home mums who are on a journey to rediscover themselves after becoming mums. So we help them find anything that gives them fulfillment, purpose, or sparks the joy in them. Um, And as you asked me for my story, in March 2021, I was that mum who found herself in an online workshop, uh, completely lost. I did a workshop on the important aspects of my life and the five aspects that I had were friends, family, kids, husband. Uh, There was absolutely nothing on that about myself. And at that point, I knew that I had to change that and I had to find who Rucha was again. And I set out on that journey and here I am today with the Mom Identity Project. Oh, it's a big moment. I'm sure that realisation and, and, you know, some people can take that in either way of going, oh, my goodness, and having a bit of a scare and maybe resigning themselves that this is my life now. For you, it spurred you into action to start the Mum Identity Project. And you've identified four stages, as you put them, a four stage journey. Would you mind talking us talking us through a little bit about your four stage of the Mum Identity Project and, and why it's crucial to understand and recognize what stage you're at? Uh, yep. So like you said, you can either figure out, you can be at that point where you're feeling stuck, very unhappy. You realize that you have put yourself right down your own list and you don't exist there. And at that point, you can either sit there and be like, this is it. I don't know what to do and cry about it or not do anything. And I was that for a couple of days, I'm not going to lie. But I set out on this journey and we call it the journey because it's taken me two years to realize that it's not, before I go into the four stages, I just want to say that oftentimes moms feel like if they go back to work, feeling like the way they are, they will be seen or they will feel heard. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I realize now after my own experience and after talking to a lot of moms, that the answer to being seen is by understanding who you want to be seen as. Like mm-hmm. my, my coach, Sophie Thomas says, you need to know who you want to be seen as. And so we've come up with this transformative journey, which consists of four stages, heal, discovery, upskill, and launch. Um, and so for you to make that big launch and to go back to work or launch your business or find anything that sparks joy or gives you fulfillment, we feel like you need to take a step back and start with healing yourself, uh, which includes seeing a therapist or going to a personal trainer or a trainer or exercise class or anything to do with your well-being, mental, emotional. It could be a theta healer, anybody that helps you heal. Um, 
and only once you've healed and you have that mental clarity can you then go on to discover who you've become now mm-hmm. what you want to be but you could be a teacher before you gave birth to uh you know your child but now you realize that you can't go back and do that with other kids all day and then come back to your kids so <laughs> yeah. you know once it's just an example i know somebody who's like that and she wants to do social media now you know uh but that comes with a lot of understanding and clarity in your own head it really does um, and, and so it, it's it's also a bit of understanding about exactly that who you are now you know what you've learned through parenthood what skills you've acquired and how parenthood might have changed you in i don't want to say good or bad ways but certainly how it's informed how you look at the world now and and what you want to bring to the world so recognizing that stage sounds really really crucial getting that clarity so you're not just having scattergun approaches to getting back into the workplace you're going with purpose to understand what you can bring and who you want to to work with really knowing your value is really really crucial and i think yep. that's something a lot of women struggle with is that you know this sense of being invisible or being out of the workplace for mm. you know months years you know a decade and not really understanding just how much power knowledge experience and skills they could be they could be bringing um we, we i think the, the other part is hopefully having companies that recognize that value as well um which is you know something you're looking to address with the mum identity project too you've got an upcoming event risha tell us tell us about that who are you bringing together and why so the upcoming event mums beyond motherhood is exactly this journey um there is an expert from each of the stages so dr rose logan from the free spirit collective we spoke about her the last time as well She's she will amazing. be there to talk she really is she will be there to talk about healing how you know whether you need healing and what to do um and then from discovery there is ana sadekpur who is a dharma and life coach i've used her myself she's absolutely fantastic um and then there is uh, april kerns from tishtash she mm-hmm. is head of hr and she is going to talk about skills like you just said that a workplace looks at and it's not just about what experience you had lately but what skills you've acquired as a mom and it's a panel discussion with the three of them on the 2nd of November at the bureau in Golden Diamond Park I love the bureau I'd like quite like to live there <laughs> it's a brilliant brilliant space um it and who's it such a safe, who, lovely space it's gorgeous um and who's it for who are you, who do you have in mind Risha for this for this event and, and I guess who are you looking to help with it This event is for that mom who feels absolutely stuck in life but doesn't know where to start or what to do to change it. It's for moms who want to learn more about what they like now and who want to re- rediscover themselves and find things that give them fulfillment and joy. I think it's also a great opportunity to come together and have these conversations with other moms and have those me too moments of oh gosh i thought i was the only one and that's not to say that misery loves company but certainly a way of banding together to say do you know what there's a there's a power in understanding that you're not alone in in that stage and those feelings um would you yeah. mind just saying again where and when so it's it's the bureau 2nd of november what time can people yeah. um and how can people sign up risha it's 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. and the sign up link is on our instagram page which is the mum identity project dxb so m u m identity project dxb it's also under this exact same company name on linkedin the mum identity project 
It's so great to hear from you a few months after we last spoke about you identifying what you'd been through and ultimately using that as fuel to help other women. And I have to say the panellists you brought together are absolutely fantastic. That's going to be a really, really valuable morning. Again, addressing that emotional side, but also some really practical tools for taking that next step, whatever it might be. Risha, thank you so much for your time. Really do appreciate it. And um, have a fantastic time on the 2nd of November. You're listening to Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, where the number one ingredient is always high-quality salmon, lamb, turkey and chicken. Great to have you with us and fantastic to be joined by Dr. Katrin Yarn from the German Veterinary Clinic there in Abu Dhabi. She is, of course, an incredibly accomplished veterinarian on the medical side, but I have got to be honest, when Dr. Katrin is on the show, because of her expertise in behaviour in cats as well as dogs, it does turn into a bit of a behaviour special. And for that, I am actually forever grateful because there are so few experts in this area. Dr. Katrin Yarn, it's already a busy one for you. Lots of messages coming in. What's keeping you busy in the clinic right now? Oh my goodness. I've actually just come back from Italy, from Pisa. We've been at the, the European Behaviour Conference. Yeah, I had uh, two presentations there, so I haven't actually been in clinic this last week. I've been out and about presenting Ooh. my work. Well, yeah. t- tell us a little bit about some of your key messages for your presentations, but also maybe some of the learnings that you got from some of the other speakers. Great opportunity for us to get a bit of an inside track there, Dr. Katrin. Yeah, on what's happening. I mean, so I presented on um, stress management in pet air travel because obviously in the UAE, pet air travel is something that we deal a lot with. So that I actually have published two papers this year on pet air travel and how to manage stress. So those were my big messages. But yeah, we had a lot on oh, cognitive abilities in dogs. And of course, behavior medicine or veterinary psychiatry is such a massively growing field. There's just research coming in from all corners yeah can i just come back to the air travel um for anyone who might be planning to relocate um what would your kind of big takeaways be in terms of preparation before and then even you know during and after the journeys that people could really learn from today if they are forward planning yeah absolutely so preparation before is really all to do with crate familiarization um but also getting making sure that the animals are fit to fly that they perhaps don't need to lose any weight. Um, we know that the FOAS, so for the brachycephalic dogs, that's a, a big time making sure that they're actually able to travel and they're fit to travel. So those are the two big things, crate familiarization and making sure they're fit to travel. And then around the time of travel, I actually use, we use a lot of pheromone products. We use natural supplements to help manage anxiety and stress. And in severe cases, we do actually use anxiolytic medications, which are not to be confused with sedation or tranquilization, which obviously is not possible. But reducing anxiety through using very safe medications is absolutely a, a thing. Um, and then arrive. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was, I was thinking it's so interesting to think of what actually is available at hand because we kind of assume yeah. that it's just something you need to, you know, grin, grin, grit your teeth, and bear it. But so yeah, on the on the other end, um, what's yeah. what's some of your top tips? So other end, we always want to think like, how is the other end different from where they've come from? So from a climate point of view, from, you know, are they maybe moving into a home where there are already dogs or cats present? Are they moving into temporary accommodation? What are the rules, the laws, the regulations in that country? Um, You know, lots of dogs that come from the UAE and travel to, let's say, Europe, want to really like practice their recall because all of a sudden they're going to be walking Mm. off leash when they get to a country where that's possible. 
So really starting to think about all potential scenarios and putting them in touch also with really good veterinary clinics at their point of destination. So, yeah, it's a holistic 360 approach, really. Dr. Katrin, um, it, it does tie in rather neatly with what I want to talk to you about today because I saw, I saw a meme recently which was about, you know, getting a dog to help with anxiety but your dog has anxiety and now you're both living with anxiety and then I saw an article just yesterday from the Atlantic which was talking about the rise in anxiety amongst American humans um, is now impacting and what they're calling the age of the anxious canine and apparently you know Americans um, American veterinary behaviorists are booked months and months and months in advance no consensus as to why but one theory is that dogs today are more anxious you know Americans choosing to adopt pets which can save lives and but can you know ultimately be quite complicated if we're not dealing with our own anxiety or indeed responding to an anxious dog in appropriate ways and I wonder if this is something that you've seen here in the UAE and what your big biggest kind of tips would be when it comes to making sure that we're getting a pet for the right reason and that we're able to manage our and their anxiety properly. Yeah, no, absolutely. I know in the U.S. Um, it's a, a massive problem finding a veterinary behaviorist that can help you quickly. We're seeing that all over the world because there just aren't enough of us um, that, that can really help. So I'm usually not that far ahead booked out, but I'm, I'm pretty much booked out, you know, for, for sort of four, four to six weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I think we're definitely seeing more anxiety in pets, whether we're just recognizing it better or whether there are more anxious pets around. I guess it's a bit of a question mark. I think one thing I don't think is that humans transfer their anxiety onto pets. I I don't think that's the case. I think everybody has their own mental health and we know that genetics and learning and environment are really important to the formation of, of anxiety. So, you know, it could already be a genetically predisposed issue or an early life learning issue, which has nothing to do with the current owners. Mm-hmm. However, the third factor, the environment, that obviously is something that that we massively influence our pets with. And I think making sure that we have the right kind of environment um, and also enough time to, to take care of our pets needs is really, really important. And that's something that, that I have found here in the UAE, although I do think that the dog population here in the UAE, especially the, uh, the stray dog population, may have a genetic load in terms of increased anxiety for sure. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, we, you know, we, there's more and more research in, in trauma in humans and, you know, the very famous book, The Body Keeps the Score. And, and you know, when it comes to yeah. rescues as well, it's really interesting to think about, you know, a traumatized mother or a very tough start in life and the impact that might have on a dog's mental health down the line. Is there any evidence that, that points to that? Yeah, so funnily enough, actually just now in Pisa in Italy, um, there were a number of presentations on trauma and how trauma can affect um, behavior in pets moving forward. Um, and yeah, we, we're recognizing more and more trauma, just like we would in children. Um, I guess with trauma, one of the things is that individuals deal with trauma differently. So two individuals might be exposed mm-hmm. to the same trauma but in one individual that causes a problem and in the other it doesn't. And we see that in dogs a little bit as well. But anything really can be a traumatic experience. You know, being separated from your mum at too young of an age or having an early air travel experience if you're being shipped to somewhere to be resold or, you know, Mm -hmm. witnessing physical abuse at an early age or indeed throughout your life. All of those things, absolutely, we're seeing more and more and we're seeing more evidence of trauma-like symptoms in dogs as well that are quite similar to to how children would express trauma. So, yeah, on the rise. Gosh, 
and a really interesting field, I'm sure, um, that's being looked at more and more. Dr. Katrin is with us today. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, groundbreaking science, life-changing nutrition. Dr. Katrin is with us today. She is a behavioural expert, obviously a very accomplished medical veterinarian as well, on hand to take my questions, but honestly, most importantly, yours on the text line 4001, the app, the WhatsApp. If you've got any issues with your beloved furry friends. We've had a message from Rebecca here saying, I have a cat with Pika. He eats anything fabric and plastic. Lives with other rescue cats. It isn't alone, but I can't stop the habit. He has daily medication called Clomav. I hope I'm saying that right. Which I've tried Mm -hmm. to stop, but it makes it worse. He has quite a high dose and has become a bit spaced out, yet still eats things. I feel really sad for him. He's not living a full life. He's a street cat, picked up for TNR, really friendly, so didn't want to return him, but I'm at a loss now as he's a difficult one to rehome. Many thanks. That's from Rebecca. So in terms of female human pregnancy when you want to eat things like soil and chalk and paint and things like that but but cats can have it too yeah absolutely cats can have it too and um you know what rebecca's describing is exactly pika or pika as the americans call it um and actually the medication that she's been recommended is not necessarily the worst thing so pika pika um is actually a, a truly compulsive behavior in the veterinary world. So it falls under the class of compulsive behavior disorders. So where animals are compelled to do, uh, to repeat a certain behavior, even if it doesn't seemingly serve them. Um, so with, with, you know, no true motivation underlying it. Um, and yes, it does need to be treated with psychopharmaceutical medication of which Clomab is one, but it is quite, and I'm not going to say old fashioned, but an older one I think that's been used in veterinary medicine and we definitely have newer medications available however I do believe that I am the only vet in the UAE that has access to some of these newer medications so and one of the side effects of the Clomav and the active ingredient ingredient is called clomipramine is this kind of lethargy and being very sleepy and spaced out as, as Rebecca calls it so um, I can help mm-hmm. if um, Rebecca would like um, I can definitely recommend a different medication or talk through the case a little bit better but it is often um related to stress underlying stress and so we'd need to look at the bigger picture of you know living in a multi-cat environment and that sort of thing so yeah Mm. a complex one but right in my wheelhouse this one okay rebecca i'm going to send you dr katrin's details so you can chat off air but that's i'm I'm so glad that that question came in for you it's at at just the right time and rebecca wishing you and mars great name um all the very best i will (laughs) connect you guys offline We've had a message here from um, G saying when to castrate, saying we've taken on a 10-month-old poodle mix, early days, still getting to know each other, but going well, except for separation anxiety. He is a rehome rather than a rescue. So came from a loving home, but zero training and has never been left alone or at night. He's not castrated, and I'm unsure whether we should get it done. The vets have to leave it a month or so until he's fully settled. There are some health benefits when older, but it's not essential unless he's a pain around in-season dogs or aggressive, which he's not, albeit a bit bitey or mouthy when people arrive. But I think that's lack of training rather than aggression. Just slightly concerned about the process of having an op and being away from us could make a separation anxiety worse. Or is it true? Could it settle a highly strung dog? All pearls of wisdom gratefully received. That's from G. (laughs) So what a great question, because this is so complex. Um, So first of all, I have to say that castration is not the answer to most behavioral issues. So... um, that's the first thing. So will, this, will castration cure separation anxiety? Absolutely not. Um, whether castration is a good idea anyway is, is a big topic and a big discussion. But I think 
um, you know, those words were correct, that unless, um, you know, there's a medical issue later on in life or unless the dog is, is really posing a problem around in-season bitches, there's no real medical reason to neuter them unless they're, you know, they're really sort of exhibiting these nuisance behaviors um, like being you know, being around in season bitches or urine marking or some of those other very male dog behaviors. Mm. Separation anxiety, though, on its own, if we take it away from the question of castration, definitely is something that should be addressed um, because it truly is a mental health um, condition. And dogs that have separation-related episodes, so if they're left alone and, you know, they start howling, barking, whining, crying, and a number of other behaviors, that's a true panic and distress behavior, and that can massively negatively impact welfare um, and can also cause, you know, what we don't want to see in the brain. So um, neurochemical pathways being strengthened that we don't want to see. Mm-hmm. So that's, again, right in my wheelhouse, definitely one for a veterinary behaviorist. But I would say the two things are, are, are two separate questions. So should we neuter? And then the question around separation anxiety is separate. And the neutering will not fix the separation anxiety, that's for sure. And in fact, I think what G says is right. Putting the dog through um, a stressful event going to the veterinary clinic being muted right now would possibly make things worse so yeah again happy to provide more help off air if needed thanks dr katrin yarn absolute pleasure to have you with us this afternoon and you're very popular um we're going to be trying to help out <laughs> as many people as possible this is pets and vets on afternoons with helen farmer with ProPlan. Dr. Katrin Yarn is on hand from the German Veterinary Clinic, behaviourist, a vet, and my goodness, I hope you've had a coffee during the news, Doctor, because we've got a lot of questions for you. How do you feel about a bit of a, bit of a quick fire round? We're starting with cats and Jensi. Is that okay? Sounds good. Jensi says, hi, Helen, I feel like my cat is anxious and stressed. She doesn't like to be held. She usually tolerates me, but not for long. Doesn't like anyone else. Makes it known by meowing loudly, not hissing. Could she be in pain? Does she not like other people's scent? Is she sensitive to touch? We went to the vet to have a check, but every time we go, it's such a stressful experience for everyone. She doesn't like to be held by them. They cage her to get her injected. The vet says she's stressed. Will the de-stressing diffuser help her? He says, we have a new kitten in the house to help up her energy so that she's not bored. They're slowly getting along, but even before the kitten arrived, she was unhappy, I think. How can I help her? Poor little soul. And poor Jensi. It sounds really stressful Aww. for her as well. I know, it does sound quite stressful. I mean, in terms of could it be any of those things that, that Jensi mentioned? Yes, it could be all of those things, but obviously a veterinary examination is, is important to, to figure that out. Um, will, will a calming diffuser help? Probably not to the extent that you're hoping it will. As part of a multimodal approach, yes, absolutely it can be helpful, but on its own, probably not. Um, and then bringing a second cat, a kitten into the home, might be adding additional stress because cats are often not great fans of living with other cats. Um, So, yeah, I think there's potentially a few things going on there. Um, For sure, I would try and get a a proper physical exam done by a veterinarian. And you can get medications to help reduce stress at the veterinary clinic. So Mm. you can get a capsule called gabapentin, which you can give to your cat before you go to the veterinary clinic that will make them less anxious and more easy to handle. But you would need to find a veterinary clinic that um, has that facility and that that can supply you with that medication um, and is used to using those medications. Um, And then, yeah, it's really looking at the environment. But sometimes cats just don't like to be handled, and that's often due to their early life experiences. 
So not handling them too much, um, you know, being a little bit more hands off is, is probably already a, a good a good way to think about things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, physical health checkup and of course, always welcome to visit myself. Thank you so, so much. Let's see if we can help out Steph now who sent the most adorable pictures of her dogs, <laughs> Pablo, Pablo and Maverick. Pablo is a little Yorkie, Maverick, and I'm going to say this wrong, so maybe you can help me, a Belgian Malinois. Malin, Malin, oh yeah, okay. Malinois, that's right. Yeah, Malinois. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. My uh, my A-level French coming into play. Steph says, my Yorkie will not pee outside. He has no illness. He purely will not pee outside. He's eight, neutered, and my one-year-old, extremely affectionate Belgian Malinois, is jealous of my Yorkie and has now decided to pee inside as well. Not neutered. I need both of them to stop it. I moved back to Canada, then came back to Dubai, got my Belgian, and then brought my Yorkie back. So, poor Steph. Sounds like you're cleaning mm. a lot of floors, Steph. Um, inside, outside peeing, tell us. Yes. Yeah, I mean, look, it, the basics around it is toilet training, but obviously it's so much more complex than that because dogs can pee inside um, for many different reasons. I would revisit the basics of toilet training first. That would be my first step to make sure there's not a learned component there. But it could also be that the little Yorkie feels very vulnerable outside, that he's actually too afraid to pee outside, um, that there's something in the environment that, that causes him to not want to put himself in that vulnerable position and that it's just mm-hmm. more comfortable physically, mentally and emotionally to, to pee inside. So um, plus we need to also rule out any medical issues, so any urinary tract issues, any prostate problems, anything like that. Um, so yeah, it's a, again, it's a complex topic. You've got me on all the complex topics today, um, <laughs> and yeah, they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're not easy answer ones, I'm afraid. Um, That's okay. But yeah, it would need a little bit further investigation. But those again are the areas to look at. So have we got good toilet training in place? Do the dogs actually know where they're supposed to pee? Uh, do we have any physical underlying issues or? Could it be a case of anxiety and do we need to address that and help the little doggy feel a bit safer? Dr. Katrinian, I will send your details to Steph on the text line. Um, We've now got another toileting question, but it's about a cat. For Uni saying, Mm -hmm. recently adopted an adult cat, one year and seven months, and she won't stop urinating behind the TV and the computer. She was perfectly potty trained at her foster's home, so I guess it's a new environment. She's a little bit confused where to pee and I'm at loss at what to do. Obviously, it's an actual hazard, so I'm really concerned. Especially don't know what to do when I'm sleeping because she only urinates behind the TV when I'm not looking. I was thinking about putting some aluminium foil down, but tell me if that's a bad idea. How do I get her to pee properly in a litter box? She's able to poo in there. It's just the peeing bit. Would really appreciate the help. That's from Uni. Okay, good. Yeah, another complex topic. So peeing in a cat, <laughs> um, I know, it's another really interesting one. So the first thing we want to establish is, uh, is the cat urine marking or is she emptying her bladder? Those two are really quite different things because emptying your bladder is, is usually a case of the litter box is not attractive enough or it's in the wrong location or it's not big enough or um, perhaps we haven't got the right kind of litter. So many different reasons for that. Also, cats like to urinate and defecate in separate locations so if you've only got one litter box we need to consider getting a second one mm-hmm. um, and on the whole cats prefer open litter boxes so I would maybe have one open one closed or maybe two open litter boxes but they have to be big at least one and a half times the length of the cat from the tip of its nose to the base of its tail um, wow. that's the recommended size yeah 
And for an Arabian Craig, if you've mouse, got, that's a big cat. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> you've, got, you've got a Maine Coon. You're right. looking at an absolutely exactly. massive one. Okay, okay. So yeah. the, the environment is something that's absolutely worth addressing. Maybe try that absolutely. first, Uni. Okay, I'm, I want to squeeze in a question um, from Roxana here saying, um, Hi both. Great timing because my poor Shih Tzu has been hacked to bits by an awful dog groomer. She looks like a mess. Oh. But my biggest concern is a large sore under her chin, which looks like razor burn. I will take the vet tomorrow, but I wonder if there's anything like um, Savalon or Germaline I could put on it this evening to soothe it. It's under her chin, so she won't be able to lick it, but I don't want to hurt her anymore. That's from Roxana. Yeah. Absolutely. You can use a soothing cream, something like Sudacrem, or you could get Fusidin at the pharmacy, which is just a very kind of mild antibiotic cream. Um, clean it with just some warm water, pat it dry, and then apply something. Aloe vera gel is another really good one. Anything that's soothing like that, and then absolutely get a seen by the vet um, at ASAP. Yeah. Dr. Katrinyan, thank you so, so much. Really appreciate your time. Um, lastly, where can people find you both in real life and online? Because I know you've got some brilliant <laughs> resources on your Instagram and the website, which I'm sure a lot of people today could definitely be learning from, whether it's you know to do with training and preventative measures or indeed dealing with some of these issues. Where can we find you? Yeah. So I do have some very exciting news, and that is I have a podcast coming out. It's literally about Yay! to launch the beginning of November called the pet behavior chat so that's going to be all about um, veterinary behavior issues in real life you can find me at the german veterinary clinic in abu dhabi and um, our website uh, facebook instagram all under the same name and then my online business is trinity veterinary behavior so instagram we're on trinity vet behavior and i also have a great facebook group which is the pet behavior community so lots of places Thank you so, so much, Dr. Catherine. Really appreciate it. Um, I know we've had some tricky ones today, but there is no better person for the job than you. So thank you for your expertise. Really, really enjoyed our chat. So thank you and congrats on the podcast. It's going to be a great listen. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.